Well, A.W. Tozer said, uh, I, I think he said it best, especially for our context and for our situation this morning, uh, even though it was almost a half century ago that he said these words, a scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. How, how can we have that fearlessness? How can we have that sense of security when all around our souls give way? And maybe, maybe for you it's not the coronavirus. Maybe for you, you look and you go, I'm okay, I'm not scared. Maybe, as I prayed, maybe it's the stock market. Maybe it's none of these things. Maybe it's nothing even for you at this very moment. But for some of you this morning, there are fears and concerns. And for all of us, we will walk into difficult times that will try our souls, that will bring fear. And the world around us, for sure, at this moment, is scared and panicking and wondering and what the world around us needs is a fearless church. So help me. Help me with this passage. Be still and what? Be still and know. And know what? Be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. Now, where is that from? Anybody know where that's from? If you say Psalms, you're on the right track. It's very interesting. Most people know that verse. But if you ask them, where is it from? Maybe some people will know where it's from. And then if you're asked in the context of that verse, where is that verse from? It is Psalms, you're right. Where is the context? Where does it actually fit in in context? What's the passage? And I think sometimes when we take a verse, as Marty has been demonstrating in our Sunday school, when we take a verse out of context, we rip it out of its, its punch. We rip it out of uh, the, the amazing oomph that it can give us if we understand what's actually going on behind it. So, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 46. Psalm chapter 46. This is where you will find that verse. Be still and know that I am God. What's the context of Psalm 46? This psalm used to be called a psalm of trouble. It became known uh, hundreds of years ago as Luther's psalm for reasons that we'll see at the end of our time together. The historical context is 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. King Hezekiah is reigning in Judah, and the nation of Judah is being attacked by the Assyrians, uh, by a king named Sennacherib. And they have, the Assyrians have come up against uh, Israel, against uh, Jerusalem, and they are going to wage war against the city of Jerusalem. A hundred and 85,000 men are going to be reported in this battle, but we know that there are more than that. So hundreds of thousands of soldiers up against the walls of Jerusalem, ready to break in, ready to destroy. And the Assyrians did terrible things to the people that they conquered. Terrible things. Skinning people alive, other things that aren't even worth mentioning here. Just terrible things. So here's King Hezekiah looking over the walls, seeing this terrible foe, this terrible army, and he looks inside the walls and he says, we have no one who can defeat this army. We don't have enough men. We don't have enough weapons. We have no one. And so he prays. It's an amazing prayer in 2 Kings. He prays, God, help us. Basically, the, the point of the prayer is, we can't do this. Help us. And Isaiah the prophet answers, God answers through the prophet Isaiah, and the answer is pretty much God saying, summed up, don't be afraid. I've got this. Don't be afraid. I've got this. 
So Hezekiah says, we don't have anything to be afraid of. We have no reason to fear. Go to sleep, rest well tonight, and we will see what God does. And the next morning, they wake up to find something that none of them would have ever imagined. Because the night before, during the middle of the night, the text tells us that the angel of the Lord, not multiple angels, but one angel, and we know that the angel of the Lord is a prefiguring of Christ. It is a, a pre-incarnate Christ. So Jesus goes around, just Jesus by himself, doesn't need any more help, doesn't need anybody else. He goes around in the Assyrian camp and he kills 185,000 people in one night. And King Hezekiah wakes up to see that. And he looks. All the other Assyrians that had woken up finding their dead comrades next to them ran away for good reason. And Hezekiah opens the gates, walks out, and he's standing in the midst of of just bodies lying all over the place. They had done nothing. And he says these words, Come, behold the works of God. Look at what God has done. The nations are at his feet. He bends the spear. He breaks the bow. He makes wars to cease. And then he says, this is where he says those words, Oh, be still and know that he's God. Be still and know. When all around our souls give way, God then is all our hope and our stay. This is our God. The same God of 2 Kings 18 and 19, the same God of Hezekiah, the same God of Psalm 46 is our God today. So let's read these verses. We will ask God's blessing on our time. And then we will just look at three ways that we can find security in God in the midst of unstable times. Psalm chapter 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Oh, come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. So be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. Father, we thank you so much for these words penned thousands of years ago that apply right now. There are those who claim the Bible is irrelevant. It's an outdated old text that has no bearing on today. No, this absolutely applies. Thank you for showing us yet again that your word is absolutely relevant. You are an unchanging God, and therefore your word always applies in its perfection in these moments in life. 
God, I pray that you would raise up, even as we studied in Revelation 2 and 3, faithful and fearless people in this church, that we would be a church known for being faithful and fearless. What a great opportunity. What an amazing moment in history to be faithful and to trust in you and be fearless Christians. God, we have the hope that we can offer the world around us who is panicking. We have hope. May we even live out what our brother Ben read this morning of being a good neighbor to those around us by giving them hope, meeting their needs, and showing them that you are the God who is a mighty fortress. May we run to you now and find our deepest satisfaction in you doing all the work to protect, to save, and to guard us. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This psalm gives us three different ways that we can find security in God in unstable times. Three different ways that we can find security in God in unstable times. And the first is verses 1 through 3. You can see this is uh, split up into three different stanzas with those words, Selah. You remember when we studied the Psalms uh, a number of years ago, we looked at what that word Selah meant. That word Selah meant uh, pause, take a break. Uh, literally, it's lift up, lift your eyes. Probably a, a notation musically for the, the performers of this song to lift their eyes. There was a musical interlude. They didn't need to sing. They could wait until their conductor brought them back together to read the next stanza. So each stanza is broken up as a, a unit of thought for us to dwell on, to pause on. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. The first way that we find security in God in verses 1 through 3 is we need to let the nature of God change our perspective. We need to let the nature of God change our perspective. Another way we could say it is we need to let who God is change how we feel and how we think. Let who God is change how we feel and how we think. We need to let his nature change our perspective. Verse 1, God is. This is who he is. And since he is unchanging, he is immutable, he never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Since that is who our God is in the past, that's who he is today. This is who our God is. He is a refuge, and he is strength, and he is a very present help in times of trouble. He is our refuge, he is our strength, and he is a very present help in times of trouble. Refuge. This is a word that means strong, secure, uh, a secure structure that provides shelter from an enormous storm, from something raging against it. Uh, think of a hurricane. You can go inside of this fortress and you will not be moved. You will not be shaken. It provides shelter from the elements. It's very interesting, just even poetically speaking, because in verse 7, if you drop down to verse 7, the psalmist says that the God of Jacob is our stronghold. That's a different word. And that word means a fortress against an enemy that's come to attack you. Poetically, he says he's going to start talking about like hurricanes and storms and floods and earthquakes. And so he says, God helps us in the midst of natural disasters, poetically speaking. And then he's going to move in verse 7 to say, and he helps us in the midst of um, economic disasters with, a, with a, a neighboring army coming to destroy us. He is our help no matter what can attack. That's the point of him using these poetic phrases, whether it's the earth, whether it's nature, whether it's the economy, whatever it is, whether it's people, you can be protected by God. He's our refuge, the strong fortress. He's also our strength. That's the second thing that the psalmist says. He's our strength. This is used to speak of God's omnipotence, his all-powerful nature. Nothing can prevail against him. And he is a very present help. 
I love those words. A very present help. Literally, a very findable help. Can be found when needed. That's the, the phrase here. Whenever you need him, he's there for you. You can run to him. You can find him. He can be found. He's our help. He's our support. He's our assistance. And this is assistance without which you would not survive. This isn't like me saying to my daughter, hey, Chelsea, can you help me take the groceries into the house? This is help that I'm dying, and if you don't help me this instant, I'm going to die. He is that help for us. Therefore, because that is who God is, because he is a refuge, he is our strength, and he is a very present help in times of trouble, therefore, because of that, we will not fear. We will not be afraid. This must change our perspective. Because this is who God is, this is how we think. This is how we act. This is how we feel. We don't have to be afraid. Because of who God is, this is how we can act. This is how we can think. And look at what he says. Even if the earth should change, even if the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, even if the waters roar and foam, even if the mountains quake, at the, the swelling pride, the, the flood is going to destroy the, the earth around us, we're not going to be afraid. We won't be afraid. How do we practically do this? How do we practically turn what we know about God into how we live and how we act? Um, just write down Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Uh, I would say the way that we do this is through prayer, right? Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is at hand, is coming, is here, it's now. He says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God in Christ Jesus will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace that surpasses all understanding. And then he goes on to say, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, you remember that list. He says, think about these things, dwell on these things. So pray about the truth of who God is and find your greatest hope and satisfaction in him in the midst of those fearful times and then dwell on who he is. Pray knowing who he is and then think about who he is. Turn to 1 Peter. Here's another passage for you. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is another way that we can practically apply who God is to our circumstances. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. So you can cast your anxiety upon him. Your fears, your anxieties, you can cast them all upon God. He is a refuge and strength and he'll help you. These two verses, verse 6 and 7 of 1 Peter chapter 5, give us three specific ways in which we can apply God's character to our lives. Number one, we have to be humble, right? He says, be humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty right hand of God. Humble yourselves under his hand. This is acknowledging our uh, minuscule, tiny size compared to who God is. Saying, God, I know you're stronger than I am. I can't deal with this. I can't handle this. I'm going to roll my anxieties upon you. Augustine said, the essence of sin is when we believe the lie that we are self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustaining. That's the essence of sin. I think one of the things, maybe two things that have been helpful, at least from my vantage point, with everything going on with the coronavirus, is number one, our self-sufficiency has been destroyed. 
We're walking around thinking maybe the air we breathe is going to kill us. I mean, that's when you know our self-sufficiency is gone. I can't rely on myself. The second thing that's helpful to remember is this has brought death at our doorstep just to remember there is an end for all of us, right? Every single one of us, unless the Lord comes back to take us home, every single one of us will die. And this is a helpful reminder. So 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, we need to be humble. Humble yourselves under God and his character. When we lose our job, when a virus happens, when the stock market crashes, it's a surprise to us, but it's not a surprise to God. He knows. Some people say, you follow Jesus because the Christian life for you is a crutch. And I say, no, the Christian life is a gurney, right? It's an ambulance. I'm dead, and I need the paddles. That's the Christian life, right? It's not, I can do this on my own, and I need a little bit of Jesus to help me along. Peter says, humble yourselves knowing you have nothing. You have nothing that you can rely on in yourself to make you fearless, to make you free of anxiety or worry. The second thing he says is we need to wait. We cast all of our, or we humble ourselves under the mighty right hand of God, and he will exalt us at the proper time. At the proper time, not at the time frame that we want, but in his perfect timing. We, we throw all of our anxieties on him, we humble ourselves under who he is, and then we wait. We wait. This is the hardest part of trusting the Lord is that waiting period. I've heard it said before, God's never late, and that's a true statement, but it's also true that God is hardly ever early. We wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, trusting He has a plan. He knows what's happening. And then, the third specific that Peter gives us, not only humbling ourselves and waiting patiently, but verse 7, casting all of our anxieties on Him. That's literally the participle that modifies the main verb of humble. Humble yourselves. How do we humble ourselves? We cast all of our anxiety on Him. We say, I I can't hold this burden. I can't hold this fear. I can't hold this worry or anxiety. I just cast it all on him. We cast it on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares. He knows whatever problem you you are going through is is the biggest problem that you're going through right now, right? Difficulties, trials are all relative. If you think objectively about everything that's happened in human history, even what we're going through right now isn't that terrible. I think of even people in the Bible. Think of Moses from Hebrews 11. You remember the hall of of fame of faith? Um, Moses, there's a a whole biography of Moses' life in in that chapter. Think of what Moses went through. He was born in trouble, right? He was born into the midst of trouble. His parents, to keep him from that trouble, had to put him in a basket and throw him down a river. I mean... Today, in in modern American evangelicalism, there are parents that don't even want to put their kids in the nursery, much less a basket in the Nile River, right? Like, our problems aren't that big compared to what some of the brothers and sisters in the faith have gone through before us. And they said, our God is a God who is a rock. We can go through it because he's a rock and he cares for us. He cares for you and for me. So throw your burdens on him this morning. Cast your anxieties upon him this morning. He cares for you in the midst of whatever you're going through. Back to Psalm 46. Turn back there, Psalm 46. So the first aspect of how we are going to change 
the insecurities in our hearts to trusting in the stable rock and fortress of who God is, is number one, we need to let the nature of who God is change our perspective. Let the nature of who God is change our perspective. Number two, secondly, we need to let the nearness of God be our peace. We need to let the nearness of God be our peace. This is verses four through seven. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, this is an interesting verse. There's no river in Jerusalem, so we kind of scratch our heads at this one. What what does he mean when he says there's a river when there's really no river? Uh, There's a spring that bubbles up through the city. In fact, uh, King Hezekiah made a tunnel that would take the spring water up into the city, through the city, so that they could have the water. So maybe it's a reference to that. Probably poetically, it's a reference to the spring, the, the Gihon spring in Jerusalem. He says there's a river that makes the, the city of God glad, as opposed to those roaring waves and the tidal waves in the first few verses that are destructive. God gives us a river of hope and of joy and of gladness, a peaceful river. And it flows in the city of our God. The city of our God, that's Jerusalem. But my question is, why not just say in Jerusalem? Why not just say in the city of Jerusalem? I think there's three reasons. Number one, it's poetic. This is poetry, so he's trying to be poetic. So he says, in the the beautiful city of our God. I think number two, because he's referencing who owns this city. This is God's city. And if you're in this city, you're God's people. And if you're God's people, nothing can touch you. And then number three, I think there's more than just the old city of Jerusalem in view here. I, I would just encourage you, write down and look these verses up later. Isaiah chapter 33 Isaiah 33 talks about the city of our God, uh, an idealized Jerusalem down the road. We're going to talk about it even in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem. Write down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 29. We don't have a lasting city here. We're seeking the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem, the city of our God that's going to come. And then also write down Psalm 87, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 87, verses 1 through 7. It's a great passage where the psalmist says, there are people in Philistia, in Egypt, and in Cana, or in Canaan. There are people in all these three different locations that are a part of the city of our God, which is just a beautiful way of saying even the, the Philistines, right? these are the worst enemies of the Israelites during the time of David and Saul. And yet God says through the psalmist, there are people in Philistia that are a part of our city. And it's a really poetic way of saying it because he says they, uh, the people in their city look at them and say, you're not, you're not of us. You're not of our city. You're of a different city. You're, you're Yahweh's. You're not ours. So this is the city of our God, not just specifically geographic Jerusalem. This is the holy place, middle of verse 4, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in her midst. And because God is in her midst, verse 5, she will not be moved. We need to let the nearness of our God be our peace. That's why he says this is God's city, and he owns it and controls it, protects it, and it's also, he's in the midst of her. There's nobody in that city that doesn't have access to God. I love how he says, God will help her when morning dawns. You have to wait out the night. You have to wait, but help is coming. You're going to have to wait, but help is coming. He says, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, God raised his voice and the earth melted. Again, poetic language for the destruction that God was able to to cause on the enemies of God. 
the enemies of Israel, but also a future melting of the earth is going to take place, Peter tells us, and we're going to talk about that in Revelation when we get to it. And then he ends with the refrain. This is the chorus of Psalm 46, verse 7. This is the chorus. The Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the God who owns and controls all the armies of angels, the countless armies of angels, that's the word Sabaoth. When I was younger and I would sing A Mighty Fortress and we sang Lord Sabaoth, I would think it was a misprint. It should have been Lord Sabbath, right? He's the God of the Sabbath. That's what I thought. It's actually Sabaoth. It's not a misprint. I was just dumb. <laughs> it means God of the, the, the God who owns and controls the armies of angels that are at his command. They're waiting. We're going to see it again in Revelation 4 whenever we're able to get to that chapter. He controls them. They are his servants, and he tells them when to go, where to go, and they say yes. He's with us. He's in our midst. Verse 7, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Why God of Jacob? This is a reference to the covenant that God made with his people, with Jacob, with Abraham, with Jacob, with Isaac, all these different people involved in the covenant community. They're God's people. This is a, a way of the psalmist saying we are not only in God's city and God is not only in our midst in the city, but we belong to God. We are his if something bothers us, it bothers him. If something hurts us, it hurts him. If something is uh, making us afraid, he wants to console us in those moments. Remember Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. You are the apple of God's eye. You're the apple of God's eye. That means uh, if somebody comes up to you and they give you a handshake, that's fine. Maybe not today, but normally that's okay. If somebody comes up to you, they give you a hug, that's okay. If somebody comes up to you and they poke you in the eyeball, you think, excuse me, what did I do to deserve that? And I don't want to be your friend anymore. You're not going to be okay with that. But here, God says, if somebody pokes you, it's as if they're poking me. That's what Zechariah 2.8 says. You're the apple of my eye. If they harm you, it's as if they're harming me. They're poking me. And he's going to rise up and defend us. The psalmist says, we know we are God's. Can I just ask you, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Who's your father? Who's your God? Where is your security? Who do you belong to? My daughter, just by the very nature of her being my daughter, just implicitly trusts me pretty much about everything. There's going to come a day when that changes, but for now, she just trusts me. She doesn't need information to trust me. Right? She's not saying, hey, have we paid the gas bill? How's our mortgage doing? She just, I trust you. We didn't get in the car this morning and drive to church, and she goes, hey, Dad, make sure that we have enough gas in the fuel tank. She just trusts. He'll take care of it. We have enough gas. There's an implicit trust. Even in the most fearful moments in life. I'll never forget, uh, we had the privilege of going to Disneyland, and uh, we were talking through the map of all the rides we wanted to go on, my daughter said, I want to go on Splash Mountain. And I said, I don't think you do, but um, you sure? And so we walked by, and she said, yes, I'd like to go on Splash Mountain. I said, okay. I mean, throughout the entirety of that line, which has never really been short for me, so through the entirety of that, like, 45 to an hour long line, I'm just, just trying to talk her out of it. Like, hey, you know this is hard. You know this is, there's a big drop. You saw it. You know, oh, I want to do it. I want to do it. Uh, Ethan was with us at the time. 
And so I tried to get to Chelsea through Ethan. Hey, Ethan, this is going to be scary, buddy. You don't want to go on this. And <laughs> Ethan's like, no, 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 we'll be fine. So we get in the, the log, we sit down, it's soaking wet. You're already wet the moment you sit in that chair. And we start going, and there's a little, like, you know, little dip, and my daughter just hangs on the front. And I just, I'm thinking, this is awful. I'm terrified that she's just going to jump out of the log at some point in the ride. So there's the cute little animals and the songs playing, and she's having a blast. And, and there's a perfect moment in the ride that's, like, timed perfectly, where in the peaceful moment of the ride, you just kind of, you go outdoors, and you make this little this turn around the fall, and they perfectly time it every time where as you're going, there's a log going down. So we're on the ride, we're making the turn, and the log goes, and the people in it are just way overly dramatic about their drop. <laughs> so it goes around, they're just screaming their heads off. And my daughter goes, we're not doing that, are we? <laughs> and... <laughs> It's in those moments that you struggle. Like, is line okay <laughs> at this point? Um, I told my wife, because it was Chelsea, me, Ethan, Hannah. I said, Hannah, hang on to Ethan. Uh, this is going to get rough. And I was like, no, Chelsea, like, we'll be fine. It'll be okay. We're not doing that. I went with the line option. Um, <laughs> But as we're going through, I told her, I said, Chelsea, no matter what, I'm going to hold on to you. I've got you, no matter what. And you could see, so her hands are on this thing as tight. I mean, this is the definition of white knuckling, right? As tight as possible. And I'm right behind her, and I said, no, we're not going to do that. But whatever happens, I've got you. And I just wrap my arms around her. And she just takes her hands off, and she holds on to me, and she says, OK, we'll be fine. <laughs> And, uh, well, you know how it ends, right? <laughs> going up, the little clink, 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 clink. She goes, Dad, I thought you said we're not going. <laughs> I said, oh, I didn't know if we were. <laughs> ah, and there we go. And we're all OK. She's alive. She still trusts me to this day. There's an implicit trust that comes knowing I'm her father. And I totally abuse that trust in that moment. But she knows, she trusts. And if I'm with her, and she's mine, then she can say, we'll be okay. That's the point of what the psalmist is saying. The Lord of hosts is with us, and he is the God of Jacob, therefore we are his. He's with us, and we are with him. And then he says, Selah, let that just simmer in your soul. Don't move on quickly. You are God's. If you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you are His, and nothing can snatch you away from His hand. After taking a break, he moves to the historical background information in verses 8 through 11. And this gives us our third way in which we find security in the midst of an unstable world. Number one, we need to let the nature of God change our perspective. Number two, we need to let the nearness of God be our peace. Not the circumstances around us, not the trials, not what's going on, just God being near and us being his. That is our peace. And then finally, number three, we need to let God's triumphs in the past 
be our hope for the future. We need to let God's triumphs in the past, this is the historical section in verses 8 through 11, God's triumphs in the past be our hope for the future. As we look into the present and into the future and we say, I don't know what's going to happen, we can look back. This is the whole point of the Israelites raising the Ebenezers. You guys remember that language of raising the Ebenezer, the, the stones, the little altars, the little pillars that they would make just by some geographic place where something amazingly miraculous happened. When the Jordan River was, was parted, and the priests were able to walk through on dry land. When that Jordan River was parted, right before going into Jericho, Joshua said, wait, time out. We need to make a memorial stone. We need to remember. That was amazing. You know you have, uh, you know you have uh, kids who are pastor's kids when we're going to Costco and there was this huge river. Uh, of, it was just pouring rain and all the kids are walking up to the river and Ethan goes, wait, we need to pray and God will part the river like he did with the Battle of Jericho. I was like, do it, buddy. And uh, it didn't work. And he goes, next option, let's jump. Um, but I thought, hey, this is so cool. And I said, we need, we need Moses to help us out here. Part the Red Sea, not just the Jordan River. We need help here. And uh, Tyler just decided to walk right through. And he said, I don't need any help. And he was wet all the way up to just soaking wet. God has triumphed in the past. We forget that. We forget that a lot. And so we, we get panicked in, in the moments of trials and fearful and anxious looking around us. This happens for me on a daily basis, just wondering what's going to happen in the future, what's going to go on. And the psalmist would say, hey, remember what God has done. Remember he has been your help and therefore he will always be your help. Remember his victories in the past. When you thought there was no way out of this and God got a way for you, he made a way for you to make it out, he's going to do it again. Remember that God has won in the past, he wins in the future, and we win with him. We win with him. Verse 8, Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. This is what he's done. Therefore, in the present, cease striving. My Bible translates it, cease striving. It's literally be still. Stop talking. Stop arguing. Stop asking. Just be still. Relax. Because you know that God is God. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the refrain again in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Turn just a couple chapters back in Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Starting in verse 3, the psalmist says, Trust in the Lord. Trust in Him. And then do good. Don't be lazy. Trust God and live it out. Dwell in the land, trusting Him, and cultivate faithfulness. Keep working hard. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. I love that word commit in verse 5. It's literally a Hebrew word that means roll up. Take something and roll it up onto a wagon or a cart. Roll it up and then leave it alone and let somebody else bear that burden. Roll your way up to the Lord. Give it to him. Trust also in him and he'll do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. 
Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Don't fret because evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. That's similar to Psalm 46 of be still. Some of your translations might say, be still and wait patiently. It's the, gentle, it's the gentler version of Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is a word that says, hey, stop talking, stop striving, stop worrying. And know that God is God. He has worked this miraculous defeat against the Assyrians. So just stop. This is the gentler version. Rest in the Lord. Be still. You can not worry, not fret. You can just rest. Be still. Psalm chapter 46 is the psalm from which Martin Luther wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. In 1521, Martin Luther was excommunicated by the church, the Catholic church. People were sent out by the church to kill him. Philip Melanchthon was Luther's partner in crime in these moments, one of his best friends. And you remember Martin Luther went to hide out in the Wartburg Castle for two years, just by himself, alone. He was doing the social distancing very well. And Philip kept bringing Luther news. He knew that Luther was there in the tower, and so he'd go out, he'd get the news, and he'd come back. And it was almost always really bad news. Church is doing bad things, people are dying, and they want to kill you. And every time Philip would bring bad news, historians tell us that Luther would respond to Philip's declaration of bad news by saying, Oh, come, come now, Philip. Come and let us sing the 46th Psalm. Let's just sing. God is our fortress. He spent two years in the castle translating the Bible into German. He said these words about his time in the castle. I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. When fear of the black death was knocking at his door, he said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect me, Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated, and thus perchance inflict and pollute others, and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. That's beautiful, right? I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to work. And if God would wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I've done what he has expected of me, so I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it neither is brash nor foolheartedly attempting to test God. I'll trust Him in the midst of whatever's going on around Him. Very applicable even to our situation today. said, I've, I've been in moments where I'm despairing and I feel like Jesus is totally far off. I'm in moments where I'm trusting Him and I'm doing the right thing. And after all of these moments, He wrote Five years after all of these moments, he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. This was his favorite hymn to sing. This was his favorite song because it was a song that would remind him 
of the nature of God so he could have his perspective changed, of the nearness of God so he could have peace in the midst of worry and anxiety, and of the triumph of God in the past so he could trust God in the present and on into the future. He said this about his psalm. When we sing this psalm to the praise of God, because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and of sin. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us. And what I want us to do this morning as we end our time together is I want us to meditate on this psalm. I want to meditate on it practically and intentionally as we sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God together, but I want to meditate on it together as we have someone else sing for us. I'm going to, I'm going to play two different songs. Words are going to be up on the screen, and I, I want you to listen. They have two very different tones. They're both from Psalm 46, dealing with the character and nature of our God, We don't have to be afraid because our God is in control. And then we can find rest and satisfaction and hope at the fountain of living waters. Remember he said in Psalm 46, there's a river that makes glad those who dwell in the city of God. So my question to you this morning is, do you dwell in the city of God? Are your worries and fears and trials all wrapped up in the mercy of Jesus Christ? Do you trust in him alone for salvation? and for forgiveness of sins. If you do, then as you meditate on these two songs and we respond in song, I believe that we're going to walk out these doors armed and ready to give hope to the hopeless around us. God, I pray that you would encourage us through these songs, encourage us as we sing, encourage us through Psalm 46 as we rest and rely on you and your strength alone. We pray it in your name. Amen.